Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We also thank the Management Learning Journal for their wonderful support. Now on with the show. Welcome to episode 96, where we will examine a classic book by Shoshana Zuboff titled In the Age of the Smart Machine, The Future of Work and Power, published in 1988 by Basic Books. This is part one of the episode where we present the major findings in the book regarding how the introduction of information technologies into the workplace changed the meaning of work, but also presented direct challenges to managerial authority. She then described how managers reasserted their authority in interesting ways. To learn more about the text, please go to our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Hi, I'm Catherine calling from rural Northamptonshire in England. Hi, I'm Samantha calling from Mexico City. Hi, this is Greta calling in from Windsor. And this is Tom calling from Carlisle, Pennsylvania in the United States. Uh, Welcome, everyone, and uh, welcome to what we hope to be a very robust discussion on a very, very robust book. In the Age of the Smart Machine, The Future of Work and Power by Shoshana Zuboff. This was a really interesting read that kind of follows along some of the themes that we've been talking about just about the whole year on the meaning of work, the introduction of computers and all that. Um, Anybody want to introduce us to the book? Sure, I'm happy to do it, Tom. So Shoshana Zuboff is a, a fascinating character, still very much alive and still commenting, well worth following her Twitter. She's an American author, a Harvard professor, a social psychologist, a philosopher and a scholar. And interestingly, she's also both an academic and a practitioner. For much of her 40-year career, she's worked both as an organisational change and innovation consultant alongside her academic work as well. So she's one of the first tenured women at Harvard Business School, and she has a BA from Chicago and her PhD is from Harvard. She's also worked as a columnist, uh, Fast Company and Business Week magazines, two bastions of techno-optimism and uh, not really known for their anti-capitalist sentiment. This book, which is fascinating, In the Age of the Smart Machine, The Future of Work, uh, first appeared to much acclaim in 1988. I thought it was interesting to see a recent uh, quote from Zuboff in the Financial Times in the UK in 2019, when her book on surveillance capitalism came out, again, to much critical acclaim. I think it kind of sums up a lot of her thoughts. She said, once we were the subjects of our lives, now we are its objects. So food for thought for today. So the book itself was actually 10 years in the writing. And in it, Zuboff sets forth a conceptual framework with a set of questions that would resurface the whole way through her subsequent writings. It draws on 10 years of ethnographic work in industrial and office settings. So there's two pulp mills, Piney Wood and Tiger Creek. One pulp and paper mill, Cedar Bluff, is a unit of a telecoms company. There's a dental claims company, a stock and bond transfer company, a Brazilian office of a global bank a major financial institution and a large pharmacy as well. And the book itself paints a really cautiously positive, if slightly ambiguous view of the future of the world of work 
as information technology is adopted. And it's fascinating because it's almost as the adoption is happening in real time in the late 1980s. In the book, so Zuboff cautions against uh, information technology that might accelerate the worst features of automation and destroy things like workers' autonomy and sentence them to a life, a really boring working life of very mundane and undignified tasks. However, the cautious optimism comes through the wise use of automation, which can have the opposite effect of boosting workers' capacity for abstraction, for imagination, and freeing them from the more workaday aspects of their work. The book itself is organised in three parts, and it is quite a tome. In part one, Zuboff looks at knowledge and computer-mediated work. So some of the chapters include subjects such as the loss of the labouring body, abstraction of work, the history of white-collar work, technology is both exile and integration, and mastering electronic text. In the second part, part two, Zuboff examines the spiritual dimension of power, potentially the most challenging part of the book, I thought. Zuboff trains her analytical lens on the institutional conflicts over knowledge and its role in perpetrating or undermining organisational hierarchies. It's interesting that private property, class, the ownership and means of production and the stuff of earlier conflicts related to work are actually excluded from a lot of the framework. So some of the chapter titles include things like managerial authority, the dominion of the smart machine and limits of hierarchy in an informated organisation. In part three, which is called Technique, the Material Dimension of Power, she introduces us to the concept of the information panopticon panoptic power in the social texts and managing the information organisation. The book then closes in conclusion by discussing how one manages the information organisation. And the appendices actually themselves are quite interesting as well, looking at the scope as it was then in 1988 of IT in the modern workplace, as well as some notes on her methodology and her fieldwork methodology. And we might want to talk a little bit about her ethnographic approach a little later on. Uh, Thanks, Catherine. And I'd like to add that while the book is based on ethnographic work, I would not call it an ethnography per se. It's basically a history. You know, what she was, uh, she devoted quite a bit of space to trying to bring context of her ethnographies to light in terms of the meaning of work as looked at through a historical lens from the very, very beginnings, from Middle Age through to what the Industrial Revolution. She cited a number of works that we covered, similar historical works that we covered in previous episodes. Like she mentions Chandler, she mentions Gouldner. She takes what is emerging integration of automation and puts it in context of other technological achievements and its impact on the meaning of work. And so then these three parts represent more or less three different ways or three different lenses of looking at that. Or perhaps you could say a historical ethnography, where, you know, current developments are placed in their proper historical context to see the significance of changes that that she describes. Yeah, it it also reads very philosophical. Like, these are big issues. I don't know, I, I, I get this feeling every time we read one of these, like, classic big books of how big they start, right? Like, with these very fundamental issues. And then she just uses examples from these various studies and various ethnographies that she did to exemplify the main um, dilemmas that she finds in this uh, era of technological change. So do we want to... Oh, sorry. 
And she's encompassing in one book, 10 years work in eight different locations. It's a phenomenal amount of work. And I think she actually mentions at one point in it um, about, you know, how daunting the prospect was of actually collating all that information, a whole decade of her lifetime's work in one book. Perhaps it suffers from that a little bit as well, but. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it is, I mean, it's a 400 page book, so it's already, you know, a bit on the big side, but it's jam packed with her observations and examples. You know, there, there is definitely the ethnographic feel. But, you know, one of the other things when I read it, I was a bit surprised, perhaps, like my expectations were that if you were going to cover the historical part of work, that you're going to cover the historical part of work. But she covers a lot more than that when she reaches back into history. I mean, she was looking at social norms of the Middle Ages some of which were rather bizarre and disgusting, actually. But, uh, you know, to to prove a point of how uh, the meaning of work or the evolution of the meaning of work was more than just about work. It was about social behaviors. And it led to what would she would later show in her study of the source of the difficulties between labor and management. And so if you didn't figure out where she was going in advance, reading some of the background in part one in particular would throw you for a little bit of a loop. It certainly did me. I think she sets it up really nicely and like really beautifully on the preface. I don't know if you guys remember this, but she she really describes this moment of being in the library, having these experiences of people that she's been talking to for her consulting work and then going out for a walk and going into the museum and looking at these works of art that represent these changes in how workers understood the connection between the, you know, the work they do and their bodies and the, these new technologies and these kind of isolation and, and then everything clicks, right? So I think that preface for me was a, it works as a beautiful description of the entire book and this, this combination of these things that we've been talking about of history and very specific cases and very specific examples as well. I think it is um, nicely written. It's relatively accessible, most of the book, particularly part one, I think. It really romps along and it carry, she carries you through, particularly on the history elements and intersperses it with interesting anecdotes and and aspects of history. Um, part two, I think, is probably a little bit more of a challenging read. Part three gets quite interesting and particularly relevant for the times we live in now. Yeah, but I'd like to... Uh like to do is to bring in a couple of the terms that she uses as themes throughout the book because it sort of exemplifies the approach she took to explaining how information technologies or automation was introducing all of this change. One of them is a italicized phrase that she uses quite consistently. It's two of them, actually, and it's sort of used as a way of contrasting one form of work from another. And this is the idea of acting on versus acting with. You know, we started with acting on and that this idea of the body, the humans used body to perform work on things. Moving from, say, and, and it's not just about menial labor where you know the body is using instruments to bring about some sort of a change to some material object but she also kind of uses it as a metaphor for how we act on pieces of information in a, uh, using older technologies we act on information like we act on financial figures or or whatever to derive calculations that help to inform 
decisions or understand what we see. And so then the acting with, she's using all sorts of examples of how we're acting with the information or acting with the with the thing. I don't know if I'm really capturing that properly, but uh, we could. You know, it, it just it seems to be like a very very important uh, transition that she's getting at here. It's part of the change as well that occurs when information technology is adopted. You know, the computer mediated work means oftentimes that that knowledge, the kind of sentient knowledge other than the task itself as defined, a lot of that elements are no longer required. So the job itself and the task itself is pared down to just the acting on elements. And I think there's one of the chapters where she talks in particular about clerical work. And there's a little bit of a case study about, um, I think it's the dental claims firm. And she goes into quite a bit of detail about how in an effort to increase productivity and to be more efficient, computerizing the whole process of dealing with the claims is simplified, but simplified down to such a level that it's just a very basic task. And a lot of the joy as well of the job is gone. And clerical work goes from acting with and where there's interaction, maybe making telephone calls as it was then, um, opening the mail has been gotten rid of in place of a much more possibly efficient computer-led process. But a lot of the joy of the job is gone for the clerical workers. And it doesn't necessarily in the long term make them more productive necessarily or certainly happy in their work. And that transition is very difficult. Yeah, I think something else is like a quick comment to mention, because I, f I feel this is very important, especially for people that haven't read the book. These concepts of acting on and acting with and what you've just mentioned, Catherine, it, it really shows what Tuva is focusing on, which is how people feel. Right. Like she, she really she's really looking at how people feel and how they behave and their what they perceive to be the relationship to their work and their ideas of self-worth in relation to all these things that are changing about how they're expected to do their work. I, I found that part very interesting as well throughout the book, just this constant going back into how does this, you know, how, how do people feel because of these changes that she's describing that may go to very kind of historical philosophical discussions, but she always tries and connects that with how people are feeling and understanding themselves in their work. And she applies that lens to the history of work element as well, doesn't she? And she says explicitly that that was why she felt there was a coldness to how it was delivered previously. And she wanted to add the subtleties, I think, of human connection to it, and which she does do very well, definitely. I, I think a, another term that uh, she introduces, and uh, uh, Catherine, you mentioned it, informating. I think, um, or yeah, informate is, is sort of like an analog to automate. This was a term that she crafted because there just wasn't a word to describe it. Like, you know, you could have informing, you can have, uh, you know, information or whatever. But what she's really trying to get is that that sense of action that allows an organ or captures the idea of how an organization makes the best use of the information that's available through the process of automating. And so she developed informating. And a lot of what she presents, especially the further into the book that you go, 
uh, in parts two and three. Informating is almost presented as kind of like the ideal, as opposed to what ends up happening in the later parts where um, manage, because part two, a lot of part two was about how these automation techniques, because of the way that it changed what information was available and changed, potentially threatened some of the power dynamics or some of the justifications that managers had for exercising authority over their assigned jurisdiction. So this is what sort of spurred not just reactions against the use of automation, but to channel automation for use in ways that were not necessarily intended when these systems were introduced into some of the workplaces. And I think that speaks a little bit about the purpose of the book as well, because I think she has a very clear purpose from the start, right? She's warning us we're at a time where decisions are going to have to be made as to how we integrate technologies into work and how we redefine roles and the expectations uh, that we have on these workers, whether they're clerical or professional or, or whatever. And so she wants to be able to inform those decisions and for us to make kind of conscious decisions as to how we're managing this process. So I think that's also one last thing that I would add to to contextualize the book. I thought, you know, the, the main concepts we, we kind of connected here, I found like, you know, there was not really a chapter with a theoretical framework, but along uh, you, you progress in the book, you kind of understand like the very simple framework that she has. And one is, you know, this distinction we spoke about between automating and informating technologies or the potential of a technology to either automate or informate and how people can or cannot recognize that a technology is not just automating or informating. So that's the first first part of the framework. And then, as you mentioned, like the role of the body that I found a very interesting, this distinction between blue color and white color, but really putting that in a context of acting on versus acting with that we spoke about. And then some other concepts or oppositions that she introduced later on in the book is between de-skilling and reskilling, where she kind of connects it to, you know, if people or management only recognize the automating potential, it often leads to de-skilling. We, for instance, saw that in the chapters where she describes the clerical work being computerized, but that there is also an, uh, a potential to reskill. And that's what we saw very clearly in the first couple of chapters of the operators of different mills. And then later on in the book, she also mentioned this distinction between action-centered skills versus intellective skills, uh, which I found like, you know, the final part of the framework to think about like, what are the skills, what are the contexts in which these skills are visible and how well can they be explicated? Where she, for instance, mentions that the operators of the mills are actually very skilled but they have difficulty in explicating their knowledge because it's very connected to the technologies, to the machines, to the pulp, touching the pulp with their fingers. It's action-centered knowledge or skills. And where intellective skills are based upon, you know, understanding symbols, inferences, developing you know, a mental image of a production line or a factory based upon the signals you see in a computer screen. So I found that to be like the final part of the framework. And then what I found interesting, 
and you know, you, Samantha, you already touched upon it a little bit, is that she then, in the end, in the discussion, moves not to talking about informating technologies, but how you can create informating organizations and what that means for lines of authority, what that means for creating learning, having decentralized organizing, like a lot of terms that we have spoken about in, in previous episodes as well. This is where I think uh, in the later parts are also where you really start to see some of the power of the ethnographic approach coming in. Because in the beginning parts of the book, it's more about how the technology was introduced. And as you go deeper in, and she talks about how it affected authority and how people started to respond to the technology is sort of the after effects after the technology has been in place for a little bit. And the organization has made the adjustments, and the adjustments were not necessarily what the originators were interested in. And it's also interesting that a couple of the case studies, which she carries through in the later part, she carries she shows some case studies a little bit more in depth than she did up front, and talks about how, for example, some of the developers of these technologies even found themselves being pushed out. Give a quick overview of what she found was that in these cases where people were becoming more empowered to go outside of the hierarchy because before they only had an understanding of the system, of the whole organizational system based on what they could feel, touch, or whatever, as the information technologies gave them more power to see across the organization, the more it became a threat to managerial authority. In part two, she devotes an entire chapter to the history of managerial authority. Where did it come from? How did it evolve? And what basically became the justification for managers to issue directives? The term is escaping me at the moment, but I want to say that it was imperative authority, I think was what she was calling it, say, which is basically, how do I as a manager have the, have the capability or the capacity to direct you, a subordinate, to do something? As that became threatened, then the managers started to find new and interesting ways to interfere with the system and shape it in such a direction that it weakened the intended purpose of the of the system to make things more effective, more efficient, more transparent or whatever, and instead became a source of micromanagement. Yeah. And perhaps, I don't know if this is useful, but could we like maybe define or describe or discuss a little bit more about this um, duality of the information technology and what Breda mentioned, right? These like very, very key concepts of understanding technology as something that automates and informates, right? As as she calls it. I took some notes of like the way she, she defines these uh, two terms. So automate is replace the human body with a technology that enables the same process to be performed with more continuity and control. And what Subov is doing is kind of criticizing that we're just focusing on this process of automation and, and ignoring that it also informates. So informates uh, means that the same technology, this is quoting uh, Subov, simultaneously generates information about the underlying productive and administrative processes through which an organization accomplishes its work. It provides a deeper level of transparency to activities that have been either partially or completely opaque. So this is, I think, where the stronger link to issues and discussions that she does, especially in part two and three of, of authority and, and mechanisms of control come from, right? 
And it also seems to presage what she would do later with uh, surveillance uh, capitalism, because in the end, when you read through to part three, I suppose it's uh, worth discussing what is a panopticon. It's actually a metaphor that I was not familiar with before reading the book. But the information panopticon, that chapter, draws back from a, a much earlier metaphor. And I want to say it was from 1787. Yeah, this was an 18th century metaphor that uh, about a prison or a or a holding uh, facility where it which is specifically designed so that the uh, the guards with minimal guards you can see everything going on in the facility. Um, you can imagine what a wonderful place that would be. But the information panopticon, therefore, is a metaphor for how not just the workers can see more information, but now the managers can not only see the information that is passing through the system, but they can effectively monitor, shall we say, the vigilance or the diligence, the speed of which workers were acting on pieces of information to correct system faults or what have you, and uh, derive or deduce how much workers were paying attention. It becomes a form of surveillance that I think uh, sort of presaged the abilities that we have now for automation to really control the flow of work and to provide the ability to ascertain the efficiency of a worker without having to see physically see what the worker is doing. Yes, there's definitely a strong connection between um, I think what Zuboff does with with this issue of taking the the metaphor of the of the panopticon and also discussing it in terms of its effects for surveillance and for discipline. There's a parallel with Foucault's work, right? Um, who I mean, for people that study power and um, and these kinds of issues, the panopticon is kind of a a very famous concept and an image that Foucault uses to understand the very similar phenomenon, right? Discipline. And, and surveillance as well. So I found that to be very similar in, in what Zubov is describing in organizations. Of course, now in relation to technology and these specific examples that she brings from her ethnographic studies. And she takes that to the next level in more recent years. Like it's almost a kind of a benign version of it in, in, in this book. I think I said earlier, kind of a naive, perhaps optimism that it will work out okay. But, you know, by 2019, when she's writing surveillance captions, she, she has very strong views about how the panopticon can be, you know, a source of negative power and destruction of humanity almost. Yeah, you, you begin to see how, how that would go with just the simple example. This, uh, this whole vignette about uh, the, the computer coffee break was one that I thought was a really good telling example. And it's because I, I, I was in the computer field back in the 80s and I saw some of similar things happening at the time. But this put it into context in a way I didn't see as a as a young software engineer. Just to uh, put this into context, the the computer coffee break you could you could uh, see that as any sort of like an informal forum that was developed where people using the network would just simply be themselves and having fun and and whatever using the work resources like a list serve or some other things that would that would be used to connect people together to let them complain. It's like taking a water cooler conversation and people typing the their water cooler complaints. The difference being, of course, that because we're talking about the written word captured, that eventually 
the presence of these conversations online would come back to haunt and the managers would not like it for reasons that make all sorts of sense and would put the kibosh on it and would create resentment in the process of doing so. Whereas, of course, the water cooler conversation, because as, as Zuboff puts it really well, the spoken word, you know, is perishable. It just dies in place, does not have a carry a life of its own afterwards. So folks having a private conversation in a room, unless you have a microphone present, nobody knows what's being said. And as long as it doesn't affect anybody's job performance and who cares, but this was an example where it was very clear that because of the written record, the managers felt the need to do something because it was the presence of those words and the sentiments that uh, carried with it of rebellion, of whatever, were threatening to authority. Well, then it turned into something that the managers had to stop, and that had a chilling effect in other ways. I mean, it pretty much resembles the use of Slack in offices, right? Uh, when you have a company Slack account, the person that created that account can see everything that's written in whatever Slack channel there is. Like a free account, you cannot. But uh, if, if it's a paid one, you know, you can do all kinds of, you know, automated analysis based on that, like, you know, in which channels uh, there are negative sentiments. And uh, it's pretty scary how that is the realities we're working in at the, at the moment. But what I liked so much about this uh, about this book is the quality of the data that Zuboff collected. And I particularly liked some of the quotes where the operators in the mills are describing like the importance of their bodies to understand, to get knowledge about the, the production process and if they were producing the right material. Uh, and I also really liked the drawings that are later on uh, when C asked uh, the clerical workers to describe how the introduction of the computer had changed how they experienced the nature of their work. And studying changes in, in work, I've always been like, how do you capture like changes in the nature of work? Because often it's very small sentences that people say here and there, how it affects them. But for instance, you know, you're in page 63, one of the operators is, is telling how, you know, with computerization he is further removed from from his job he says his job uh, and he says i feel uncomfortable being away from these sights and smells now we only have numbers to go by like that that was one that i i really liked and another one says like you know as as they got used to reading about how well things are running in the plant he says like you know what is happening now it all occurs in my mind now these are such vivid illustrations and to be able to, to capture that, you must be an amazing field worker to establish relations with people, especially with, you know, operators. They're not easy to open up. You need to spend, like, really a lot of time with them. Yeah, I don't know what you, you thought of the drawings. I really enjoyed watching them. Like, especially, you know, there is this one clerk that um, I don't know if it is his or her, but they portrayed themselves at, in, in a prison suit being changed to their chair and that's how they felt they they really felt imprisoned in their offices in these office cubicles and how managers even when there was like a small 
gap uh, where you could communicate with your colleague. They would be closing it with filing cabinets. How that really dehumanized the workplace. I thought this was so vividly represented in, in the data in the book. I really enjoyed reading that. And I think it is definitely, Greta, one of Zuboff's amazing skills is how she humanizes so many of these situations. That case study in, in particular, I, I found actually quite moving when it gets to the part about the drawings, because she takes you on this journey, really well written, I think, as the reader through, you know, that sense of loss of certainty and control that people feel, you know, you feel like you're going through it with them. It's it's very eloquently written. Um, she says how they wondered where the material on their screens came from and where it went. It was that basic, you know, but you can feel that loss. And she also describes about how they diverted their attention to the phone to have some sense of concrete reality. You know, they felt suspended in space, you know, untethered. And then she talks about the anxiety they felt about the enter key. I guess these were the days, and maybe Tom, you can tell us from the 1980s, where if you pressed enter, that was it. There was no delete or go back or, you know, revert back to a previous version. That was it. And that created a huge sense of anxiety amongst the staff. Then you go on the journey with them as they bring consultants in and they come up with some ideas for how they can make them more productive and and cut down their jobs. But even the project manager holds, and it sounds like a his, maybe it was a woman, his hands up and says, you know, there's a limit to how boring you can make these jobs for people. You know, so it's lovely to see that people just weren't having these changes done onto them, but that there was some humanity uh, in, in the project managers as well addressing this. And then, you know, you, you we learn about universal tech because there's two in that case study. There's the Consolidated Underwriters Insurance, which is the dental claims company, and then Universal Technology, which is stock and bond transfer company. The description there about how the work starts to be just acting on rather than acting with information and knowledge was less needed, social exchange diminished, and this manifests very vividly in bodily suffering. So there was actually physical manifestations of this exile and, and alienation that people had in, in their work. And then she sa- she asks the analysts that are working there to draw how they felt. And then that hits you with the drawing. So, you know, if anybody was to open up this book and just open up the drawings, they might look vaguely ridiculous. I have to say a lot of the drawings look drawn by the same person. <laughs> But um, I do think they are remarkable. Um, and it's it's how she takes you on that journey from the start of the case study. It's brilliantly written and it crescendos with the humanity hitting you of the drawings and the real human feelings of the people that work there. And not only the workers, but also their supervisors. That's what I liked. Like the one uh, on page 153. Before we were all pulling files, you knew everyone now I do not feel they're close to me as we were before, and they are not as close with each other. Not that the office should be like a party, but before we were more of a family. And this is a supervisor that's writing this. Like, even, you know, the more lower management roles got utterly boring. Why don't we uh, t- talk a little bit about her conclusions then? Because uh, she, you know, she talks a lot about what was the the results and some of it not being positive results of automating. You know, she does in her conclusion in managing the informated organization. So she, here it is, late 1980s. We're seeing these patterns start to emerge in how managers, how organizations are treating 
automation differently than what was hoped. And she offers some conclusions or some recommendations. thought I might highlight a couple of them and let uh, we can comment on it. Like, for example, organizational theorists frequently promoted a conception of organizations as interpretation systems. The computer mediation of an organization's productive and administrative infrastructure places an even greater premium upon an organization's interpretive capabilities. And so she's, this is what opens a section called the division of labor and the division of learning. Her point, to make it simple, well, she said it right here in page 394, work organization requires a new division of learning to support a new division of labor. Crux of the point is, is everything that she showed up to this point was trying to reassert old divisions of labor in a new medium in order for a new way of dividing the work to take hold to make things more open, transparent, and equitable so that we could take the best use of technology. There's got to be a system of learning that comes with it. And this new division of learning requires a whole other vocabulary, one of colleagues, co-learners, exploration, experimentation, and innovation. That's uh, page 395. Yes, some of the skills that you're mentioning, right? Because that's one of her big conclusions, basically. We need to develop new skills, which is called uh, intellective skills. Um, and we need to do it by providing not only competence, which is, comes with the training and all that, but also the opportunities to be able to practice those kinds of skills. So she's talking about abstract thinking, data-based, inferential reasoning, procedural reasoning based upon a comprehensive grasp of the information system. So it's not only learning how to use these new technologies, but also how to think with them, which gets us back to the acting on and acting with. Yeah, and that also connects to, you know, current debates and continuous learning, reskilling of the workforce. What she's talking about here, you know, it was perhaps a little bit future forward because what she saw was how the old industry structures prevented this from happening, but also inferring from that data what is needed. And yeah, if you if you want to have more decentralized environments, you know, team learning, post-bureaucratic organizing, where these skills and this reskilling can happen, you need to change like the formal organizational structures and lines of authority around it. And the case studies that were the most successful in adopting it were Cedar Bluff? Yeah, Cedar Bluff was... I forgot the name right, because that, that they started from scratch, basically, with a new system. Whereas, you know, it was very difficult to change the other pulp mills where you're asking people who were long established in their jobs, who were older, to change fundamentally the way they work. And, in so, you know, in some cases, their work was, was their whole life. Whereas Cedar Bluff, people were, I think, younger, um, were trained in a new system from the get-go. So it was much easier for them to implement the changes and have the results that they wanted from it, which is kind of has parallels with some of the tech companies nowadays. We might want to get into it yet, but how many of them, you know, recruit for cultural fit as well, but also recruit younger people that they can mould and who are adaptable and, you know, more likely to adopt uh, new ways of working using technology. Yeah, Cedar Bluff did ultimately have uh, some struggles uh, being able to keep systems uh, together because it did run up against competitive pressures and and whatnot. So I think it's a, it was a good news story or is it, it was a positive story, but it also shows, you know, how difficult it is to actually do, even if you 
are in the best position to do it right. I, I really like the, the the little vignette that he put in the discussion on the, the Cedar Bluff case on how actually the workers try to uh, negotiate like the promotion and reward system. And because they felt like they were not benefiting equally from their increase in productivity and how when a new system was uh, rejected by management, productivity went down again and they couldn't identify like what was happening. Or kind of management or, you know, where, where Zuboff as a field, field researcher noticed that it was not necessarily what the operators were doing, but what they were not doing, where the decline in productivity, not responding to signals. Um, she really made the point that you have to have the buy-in from people on the shop floor to really increase. It needs to be a collective effort because they can learn a lot from these systems, you know, these intellectual skills that they develop. But to really get the most out of it, you need to also reward them equally. Yeah, and in the um, in the, towards the end of the conclusion, she specifically identified four domains of managerial activity. I mean, she's basically saying, "Okay, managers, this is what you really need to concentrate on," and those four domains are intellective skill development, technology development, strategy formulation, and social system development. We could probably uh, talk a bit more in uh, part two about how. How these uh, four have uh, evolved, or you know, in the intervening time to the present day, but it certainly seems like, whereas a couple of them, the intellective skill and the technology, might be easier to implement, the latter two, strategy formulation and social system development, would seem to be things that uh, just on their face would sound incredibly difficult to do and certainly would have been incredibly difficult to do in the late 1980s since they were not things that managers were attuned to doing. Is that a fair statement? And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback, so if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you for the conclusion of this episode here on Talking About Organizations.